Gresham College presents No Need for Geniuses, Scientific Revolutions and Revolutionary Scientists in Paris, the City of Light by Professor Steve Jones Right, um, welcome to the Museum of London. Uh, my name is Steve Jones and I'm going to give this talk this evening called No Need for Geniuses. Um, uh, and it's about science in Paris. Now, I first went to Paris, I'm horrified to look back, um, in May 1968. And uh, I, I arrived at the Gare du Nord and was quoted from Edinburgh, from an icy and still 1950s-like Edinburgh. I arrived at the Gare du Nord and I was uh, greatly impressed by the liveliness of the scene. But I was going down to the Pyrenees to collect snails, which is what I've wasted most of my career doing. So, I, so I, didn't, I didn't have much time in Paris, so I got the metro down to the Gare Austerlitz. Um, and when I was on the metro, I noticed a strange perfume. It's pungent, not unpleasant, but pungent. And I thought, well, they're rather, rather strange, t odd tastes in perfume these French people have. And not until I got down there and read the paper that I discovered there had been a major riot in Paris that day. And, um, and the perfume was, in fact, tear gas, which had actually, <laughs> which had actually soaked down into the metro. However, the, re the revolution of 1968, and of course, there is still a generation of people of my age in France who are called the Soissons Vitard, the 1968ers, who still mentally live in 1968, and they're still looking under the cobblestones for the beach. It's not there. Um, but uh, the revolution of 1968 came to nothing, of course. Um, uh, but the revolution of 1789 was quite different. That really was an upheaval, which in some ways for formed modern Europe. And it sprang directly, of course, from the revolution of 1776 in the United States, which really formed the world's modern political system. But the thing, I, know, I guess we, don't, we all knew that, but the thing which I hadn't realised until I started getting interested in the subject and reading around it was the astonishing role that science played in Paris in the, and France in general in those years. Um, and even more surprising, that scientists played in the revolution itself. And many scientists were central to the revolution, got heavily involved in it. Many people who were remembered as revolutionaries were, in fact, on the side science, science on the side, scientists. Many scientists paid a heavy price for their involvement. One academician, member of the Royal Society, effectively, fellow of the Royal Society, effectively, in, in four in Paris, was either guillotined, murdered by the mob, or killed in battle, or imprisoned. And that was a lot. And many of the most famous figures that we know fell into those categories. And this is the cover of my book, and it shows scientists standing on top of a, an enormous podium where they were they were showing off, um, and then suddenly being thrown off. And you see a balloon in the distance there, which was the era of the balloons, of course. You see surveying instruments, and it was the era of the Survey of France. You see various important books, mathematical instruments, um, all of which are falling to the ground where an angry mob awaits them. This is actually a Gilray cartoon, an English cartoonist, who is mocking France. But it actually tells the story in quite a clever way. So why is it called No Need for Geniuses? Well, it turns on the Revolutionary Tribunal. And you'll know the revolution was in 1789. But in 1793 came the Terror. And the Terror, which was, uh, which was promoted by Robespierre and others, 
and Marat and others, uh, was really a terror. It was a revolution which went mad of its, own, of its own accord and sentenced thousands of people, literally thousands of people, to the guillotine. And they wrote, including, of course, uh, the monarch and his wife. Um, and the Revolutionary Tribunal, it was almost unheard of for somebody to come before the Revolutionary Tribunal and not be sentenced to death. However, one person was, and that person was a scientist, a chemist called Lavoisier. And Lavoisier, and we'll talk quite a lot about him, was the founder of modern chemistry. He was the first to see patterns in chemistry. He was the first, he was one of the co-discoverers of oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen. He founded the understanding of human metabolism, the way that we burn food and use oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. So he was a major figure in science. And he was sentenced for debt to death, for reasons I'll explain in a moment. But somebody very brief bravely shouted from the body of the court, you cannot kill that man, he is a genius. And the judge sneered and said, the revolution has no need for geniuses, hence the title. So why was Lavoisier in front of the tribunal? Lavoisier is remembered by all chemists and many, most modern scientists as a figure on the same level in chemistry as Newton was in physics or Darwin was in biology. Why was he there? Well, he was there because he had a hobby. And his hobby was collecting taxes. Okay. And in France, in the in pre-revolutionary era, uh, taxes were paid, uh, paid mainly by the poor. Actually, it's, it sounds rather modern in, in that context. Um, and uh, people paid for the right to buy the right to collect taxes. They were called the, the tax farmers. And what the, the, what the state would do, it would put out a bid for 24 people to, to pay many millions of francs, hundreds of millions of francs, to the, to the state to collect as many taxes as they could up to an agreed level. And if they could collect any more, they could keep it. Okay? Um, and this was enormously repaying to the tax farmers. It was extremely uh, hard luck on the poor peasants who had to pay the taxes because they would be flogged or beaten or even hanged if they didn't pay the taxes. We have an exact parallel to that today, of course, with PFIs, private finance initiatives. That's exactly what that is. People are paying the state... Uh, the you know, to borrow some money from it, and the state is paying an enormously inflated sum back to them, uh, you know, 40 pounds to change a light bulb in a hospital and that kind of stuff. So that was the text farm, and here was Lavoisier being, uh, being mocked by a French cartoonist, uh, being, uh, being with a starving peasant in front, Lavoisier going out to collect his taxes. And Lavoisier made the equivalent of about 50 million pounds in modern money during his career as a tax farmer. And the tax farm was very inefficient, as indeed many uh, uh, taxation systems are. Um, and there were various kinds of taxes, one of the most repaying of which was called the octroi. And the octroi was the tax which people had to pay to bring, to bring goods into the big cities, to Paris in particular. If you were to bring any goods, food included, salt, all the essentials of life, into Paris, you had to pay a tax. And there was a wall around the centre of Paris, and the Parisians still say, I live intramuros, I live muros, I live within the wall. But it was very leaky, and there were all kinds of tricks that people paid. It wasn't really wall, many of them were just houses uh, in a terrace, and somebody would buy a house, and what they would do is they would bring in goods to the back door of the house and take it out of the front door of the house and not pay any taxes on it. Another very good scheme, which was used by several people, was to make um, a wickerwork model of a, of a servant and go out in your... Um, 
in your carriage and uh, fill the servant with brandy and cigarettes and that kind of stuff and come back and then unload the servant and didn't pay taxes that way. Well, the Wazir saw that was no good at all. So the Wazir decided off his own bat that the tax farmers should build a proper wall. And here's the wall built in 1784, the Enceinte de Paris. Um, and there's the track of the wall. The red line is one of the outer defensive walls of Paris. The dotted line is the, is the Enceinte des Fermiers Généraux. Um, and it was impermeable. And you can see there's a little frag fragments of it are left. Um, in the bottom left there, it's quite a solid wall. It's very difficult to get over that, um, carrying a bottle of brandy. And uh, there were a number of toll gates, uh, to only two of which survive. One of which is that one, La Rotonde, which is near the Canal Saint-Martin. And is actually, I've eaten there. It's a very good and very expensive restaurant, ironically enough. Um, but uh, the people were infuriated by this. And in five years after it was built, um, they attacked the wall and burned down the uh, burned down many of the uh, of the <coughs> of the tax toll gates. Um, that was on the 13th of July, 1789. One day before the 14th of July, 1789, which was when, of course, they burned down the Bastille. Okay, so the Bastille the Bastille was burned down. The monarch monarchy fell. There was a revolution. There was a there was a, um, and for a time a democratic or semi-democratic government. Napoleon appeared, history happened, there was the uh, events of 1870, there was the revolution of 1848. It was a busy century, the 19th century. But a hundred but years after the revolution, in 1889, it was decided to build a monument to the, to the event. Um, and uh, great arguments were made about what, what they should build. Uh, there was a, a, a short list of six buildings they would make. Uh, the one that came second to the top was a 300-meter model of a guillotine. They didn't build that, I'm glad to say. What they did build was, of course, the, uh, uh, the Eiffel Tower. And that's the Eiffel Tower, which was, uh, for 40 years, was the tallest building in the world. Um, and it's just reckoned, reckoned it's, it's just welcomed its 250 millionth paying visitor, and it's the most visited commercial monument in the world, and it was built by this chap here, Gustav Eiffel. Okay, and Eiffel was an engineer, was a young, not very well-known engineer, who had already built a number of very daring and radical railway bridges, and he put in a bid to build this thing. Now, he only had a 20-year lease, okay, and he felt that his building, which we all agree is a magnificent thing, although at the time it wasn't thought, his building should last for much longer than that, so he set out to turn that into a scientific laboratory. As he said, his tower will be an observatory and a laboratory such as science has never had at its disposal. Okay, and it's, it's a striking building. Um, if you look at it, it's made of wrought iron, which is light and strong. In fact, if you take the mass of the volume of air that, was, that is trapped within the tower, and you, you weigh the air, and air does in fact have a weight, of course, if you were to weigh that volume of air, the air would weigh more than the metal that went to make the tower. If you were to take the tower is 25 meters square at the base, and if you were to take all the metal in the tower and melt it into the base, how deep do you think it would be? It would be six centimeters deep. That's all. Okay. So it's an extraordinary work of engineering, and even in a hundred mile an hour wind, the top only moves by about six centimeters. So clearly, uh, Eiffel had, had a triumphant piece of engineering that the French are now, uh, are of course, very, pr very proud of it. So Eiffel set out to make his tower into a scientific laboratory, and he spoke specifically of 
memorializing the great scientists of the day of the revolution. And it did it in various ways. Um, for example, there is inscribed on the tower the names of 72 scientists. So not only you could read them, some of them are perhaps more familiar than others, but there's Laplace, uh, well, there's Cuvier, who was the founder of paleontology, in revolutionary years. Laplace, who was an astronomer and mathematician, and really gave, our understanding of the, gave us our understanding of the solar system. There was Lavoisier, the founder of chemistry, we already talked about. Ampere, the great electrician. That's just a few of them. There are many, many more. Uh, there, are, um, uh, there, there are many more highly familiar names there. So what did it, uh, um, Eiffel set various things up on the, on the, in his tower. Uh, the Eiffel Tower was the site of the first, world's first working wind tunnel, okay, amazingly enough. It was in the base of the Eiffel Tower. There's the wind tunnel with the tower above it, and it was used in the very earliest tests of wings for aircraft flight. Okay. Um, the Eiffel Tower was also the site of the first real research in aerodynamics. And what Eiffel did was to drop weights down long wires from the top of his tower and measure how fast they travel with the vibrating, uh, with the vibrating uh, tuning fork and what, what difference the shape and the size of the mass had um, when he's faced with air resistance. And here he is on his tower with the, on the drop test, ex test experiment. Um, and various other things were done at that time and then later. Um, the amazingly, amazingly enough, just five years after it was built, uh, the first cosmic rays were discovered on the tower because, it, uh, because um, Marie Curie had discovered radiation. People became interested in radiation and people realized really quite soon that if you had a radioactive source here and you went 300 meters away down the, down the road, uh, the amount of radiation you measured would be less than on the source. And uh, soon after uh, the discovery of radiation, somebody had the bright idea of saying, all right, what happens if we have a radioactive source at the bottom um, and we climb, the t we climb 300 meters up to the top of the tower? Is it the same effect? And they expected it would be the same effect. But it wasn't. There was too much radiation at the top of the tower. It didn't decrease as much. What was happening? What was happening, in fact, was that cosmic rays were coming in from, from space, originating from the Big Bang, um, in, the, in, in, uh, in, the, in the end, and they were discovered on the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower was the site of the world's first radio broadcast. It, uh, it had, in 1906, it had a radio aerial put on its top, and uh, messages were sent, and in 1914, the radio aerial was there, and it picked up some secret radio messages by the German army, which was then, which was then invading France, um, that they were planning an attack on Paris immediately, and the, famously, the French troops used taxis, Paris taxis, I'm sure they tipped the drivers well, uh, to, get to, the battle, to get to the Valley of the Marne, where they held the Germans back. So the Eiffel Tower saved Paris. So it's done many things, okay? Um, and it's also become an image, an icon of Paris, of France itself. And there are very famous pictures of it, and this is perhaps one of the more famous. This is the tallest building in the world, the Eiffel Tower, struck by lightning in 1890. And there's an extraordinary series of coincidences that link the issue of lightning to the French Revolution itself and to the downfall of many of the scientists who were involved in it. So that's lightning. We all know a lot about lightning. And we all believe, do we not, that Benjamin Franklin 
actually invented the lightning conductor. Many people had been killed by lightning. Many people were killed. Uh, thousands of people were killed by lightning. Um, Paris passed a law forbidding bell ringers to ring the bells during, the lightning, during lightning storms in case it was struck. Some people thought that the bells actually attracted the lightning. They were wrong there. Um, but th literally thousands of people every year were killed by lightning in Europe. Okay. Franklin famously is said to have put a kite up in the air with a, a key on it and a, a metal wet, a wet string which would carry electricity coming down. Um, if, if that had been struck, he would have been killed instantly. So we know he didn't do it because he came back from the experiment. However, he had written a book um, called Ex Experiments on Lightning in the City of Philadelphia. Um, and in the book, he described this experiment. It would be an interesting thing to do. Now, Louis, Louis XV, the penultimate monarch of Paris, who was a highly intelligent man, as indeed was his son, Louis XVI, um, uh, read this book and was fascinated by it, and he asked some of his scientists to demonstrate some of the ideas that were, the put, that were there. Well, the people involved, the scientists involved, Buffon, who, Buffon, who was a naturalist, and Dalibar, who was a, a botanist, uh, felt they better practice before they tried it in front of royalty. So they set up the world's first lightning conductor in what's now a western suburb of Paris, Marie-la-Ville, in 1752. And there it is. And at the bottom, you can see a rather gingerly-looking man in a cloak with an iron bar, a baton in his hand. And the, the idea was to wait until the storm clouds passed overhead and to hold this baton some distance away and see if any sparks crossed the gap. And the answer was, yes, they did. Um, whereupon the uh, terrified experimenter, who had been well paid to do this, ran away screaming. But that was the world's first lightning conductor. That was the first place where it was actually done. And now you can go to the, um, to the Eiffel Tower and you can look out over the landscape of Paris and the landscape of the tower itself and see many other uh, sites where world's firsts took place. And I'll just mention a couple of them before I get on to the main body of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the talk. Uh, the site of the Eiffel Tower was where the world's first hydrogen balloon was, uh, was set off, okay? It was set off with hydrogen, and how to make hydrogen had been discovered by Lavoisier. You poured uh, nitric acid onto scrap iron, and that generated hydrogen. That was the first hydrogen balloon from there. If you look, and that's, uh, that was, uh, if you looked across to the north, you see the Palace of the Luxembourg and its beautiful gardens. In revolutionary times, they only had one plant growing in them, uh, and that was, there's the chap, Parmentier, holding the plant, it was the potato. Potato was not eaten in France before the Revolution because people believed it either to be poisonous or suitable only for, um, for animal feed. Even in Britain it was scarcely eaten uh, in the 18th century. Uh, a, some people thought it was either a, a, a medicament or even, um, even an aphrodisiac. There's a remarkable line in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor where, where uh, Falstaff, who believes wrongly, of course, that he's persuaded two women to share his bed, looks adoringly upwards and he says, let the sky rain potatoes, okay? <laughs> and many Shakespeare scholars have been baffled by that. Um, but basically what he's saying is, send me some Viagra down from the sky, okay? Well, I've eaten lots of potatoes, and I have to tell you. Um, okay. So, so, um, so, that's the, potato, so, that, so that, uh, the potatoes were first planted after the revolution in the gardens there, and they had a clever trick, which is to put guards on the garden during the day and then remove them at night 
So the peasants would come, the locals would come and steal the potatoes and plant them in their own plots, and the potato very quickly spread through France, uh, vastly increasing French numbers and French health. Okay, so that was very clever. Um, the first place where, the, you can also see the first place, if you, look, if you look to slightly to the east, you can see the hill of Montmartre, and that was the place where, just after the revolution, the speed of light was measured for the first time. Um, the person involved, uh, Fizzo, his name was, um, uh, pa passed a powerful beam from his laboratory just south of the tower um, to the top of the hill of Montmartre, Montmartre where there was a, a mirror where it was bounced back, and in front of his, uh, his uh, detection device in his own laboratory, he had a spinning wheel with cogs in it, and as the, he speeded it up and speeded it up and speeded it up until suddenly the light stopped coming back. And that's because uh, it, the, in the microsecond it took to get to Montmartre and back again, the next cog had come into the view and blocked it. From that he worked out the speed of light remarkably accurately. So that's something else which perhaps most people don't realise that it's actually, um, is actually uh, something that happened in Paris in roughly those days. More remarkable, of course, as all British people don't know, um, evolution began in Paris. And if you go to the Jardin des Plantes, which, is, which was established and the Museum of Natural History, which was established in revolutionary times, um, you see a statue to this chap here, Lamarck, on the left, and if you look at the base of the statue, it says, Fondateur de la Doctrine d'Evolution, the founder of the doctrine of evolution. Okay. And there's Lamarck, and on the other side I put a rather grumpy picture of Charles Darwin, and we all assume that Darwin was the real founder. Darwin was the real founder, although Lamarck, give him his due, was the first to have the idea that things could actually change. However, Lamarck very characteristically had a very mystical view of how progress happened. And that was characteristic of revolutionary times, because many of the scientists involved in the politics felt that they were doing science, that actually it was inevitable, it was programmed, um, that humans and society would improve according to the laws of nature. Um, Lamarck, for example, spoke of a power in life. Uh, de Tracy invented a word called ideology, um, okay, uh, the scientific study, study of ideas. Ideology is part of zoology. Uh, Condorcet, who was a great mathematician and philosopher, why the general laws that direct the universe are necessary and constant. Why should this principle be any less true for the development of the intellectual and moral faculties of men? And then Bailly, who was the man who went, uh, went to, and uh, sparked off the, the uh, fall of the monarchy when he, w he went into the uh, Jeu de Pomme, the tennis court, and they swore the tennis court oath, which was the beginning of the parliament of, of, of of France. Um, Bailly, uh, who was uh, an astronomer, um, uh, was the, he's the guy who took the oath, and he wrote that the universal language of science will bring a golden age. Okay. Um, Charles Darwin didn't think, didn't agree with any of that. Charles Darwin, heaven forfend me from any Lamarck nonsense of a tendency to progress or adaptations from the slow willing of animals. For him, evolution was a machine which followed simple rules of natural selection. It didn't have a direction, a vital force, but the French most certainly did. And indeed, some of them, uh, some of them sort of still do if you read French evolutionary biology. So um, there, there's poor old Bailly, that's a painting by David. There's Bailly swearing the tennis court oath. Bailly became the first mayor of Paris um, he did very well, but unfortunately there was a massacre in Paris on the site of the, of the present um, Eiffel Tower where uh, various rioters were shot down by Bailly's troops. Uh, Bailly was grabbed 
um, and, and guillotined. They erected the guillotine on the site of the, what became the Eiffel Tower um, and uh, were about to kill him. And somebody said, you are trembling, Bailly. And this was in February. And he said, only through cold. Um, and they, uh, they executed him there. And that was the end of poor old Monsieur, Monsieur Bailly. Okay. Um, now, of course, that execution was the first of many. Uh, there's a well-known revolutionary um, who wrote from Newcastle on Tyne to his colleagues in Paris just before the revolution proper, that five or six hundred heads cut off would have assured your repose, freedom, and happiness. And that was referring to a, a smaller upheaval which hadn't gone anywhere. It had been, it had been, it had been quashed. He revised that figure to 50,000 to 50, heads cut off would assure your repose. Uh, okay. And that was Marat. And Marat certainly was uh, a dangerous act activist and political uh, extremist. Um, he wrote in Newcastle on Tyne a, a pamphlet in English, Chains of Slavery, a work wherein the clandestine and villainous attempts of princes to ruin liberty are pointed out by Jean-Paul Mallet. Um, he also wrote, but he also wrote some scientific stuff. He wrote two pamphlets, one's called an essay on gleets, and gleets are venereal diseases, non-specific urethritis, and the second, an inquiry into the nature and cure of a singular disease of the eyes. And he was a doctor. And he was quite successful. In fact, his uh, treatment of urethritis was much better than what had gone on before. Instead of using a, a, a steel cannula to push it up the penis of the poor man being treated, um, he used a very uh, a rubber one, which wasn't nearly as painful, but probably, probably just as ineffective. In fact, the University of, of St. Andrews gave him a degree uh, for having done that. Marat is a graduate of the University of St. Andrews, but Marat had to pay for that. It was quite a common pastime in those days. Of course, he's that too has come back. Uh -huh. um, it was quite a common pastime in those days. And Dr. Johnson, with his usual weight, says the unit said the University of St. Andrews is getting richer by degrees. And I'm kind, of, I'm kind of tempted to say that myself about University College London and many other such places. So he was a scientist, and he was, he, and he was, he was quite an effective scientist. He developed something that he called the solar microscope. He went back to Paris just three years before the revolution, and he became interested in, 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 in Newton's refraction prism experiments, and he dis disagreed with Newton. He felt that Newton got it all wrong, and he wrote angry books about Newton, which got him into trouble. He invented this solar microscope in which the sun came into that mirror and then came through the microscope and made images on the wall. Okay. And he felt that he found a caloric fluid because he found that if he had put flames in that flame, you could see sort of wobbly stuff coming up um, from the flame, which we know to be hot air. But he thought that was the magic stuff that's called, was called phlogiston, which was released by burning objects. Um, that was disproved by Lavoisier, actually. Um, and he did more than that. He actually did some quite a lot of electrical work, and actually Marat did experiments, which he published in an obscure place, on, on electrocuting a frog uh, and making a jump five years before the famous Italian Galvani did the same thing. Um, and he felt that electric sparks and lightning were, in fact, a fluid. And that's a diagram from one of his writings about, about lightning. So he was really quite an effective... Um, quite an effective um, uh, scientist. He was, I think he was wrong about lots of things, but he certainly saw himself as a real scientist. He became very embittered because he was never invited to become a fellow of the Royal Academy of Sciences. And I know lots of my colleagues who secretly are very embittered because they've never been uh, asked to be fellows of the Royal Society. And I can smugly say, well, I'm a fellow of the Royal Society. It's made no difference whatsoever to me, except, <laughs> having, except having to pay 200 pounds a bloody year for nothing. Um, okay. 
Okay. So he was very able. And in the end, of course, he was murdered in his bath. And that's a portrait by David of Mara, stabbed by Charlotte Corday, who came in and killed him because she, she her relatives had been executed on his orders. And uh, he's painted as a, as a hero and a saint, but he was very far from that. Now, so that brings Mara into the world of science, and there's somebody else who's also rather surprising, was brought into the world of science. Um, in the 1770s, people began to think about putting lightning conductors on buildings. And this was very, very unpopular because many people argued that the lightning conductors would attract thunder from all over France. Okay? Um, uh, in, in the Americas, they were blamed for earthquakes as well. And, uh, but I think it was even less likely. And in Saint-Omer, which is in northern France, uh, somebody called Visseri de Beauvalier put a complicated lightning conductor on his roof, and there were immediate riots and rows in a very French way, demanding that he take it down. And the citizens of Saint-Omer riot against the lightning conductor. He refused to do it, and it went to court. The city took him to court to force him to come down. And it would, the, course went, the, 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 uh, the discussion went on for on and on. And it became a kind of a cause célèbre in Paris. All the physicists in, 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 in Paris talked about it. Goethe mentioned it in his writings. It was talked about in the Royal Society of London. But the case went on and on and on. And the lawyer in charge was very ineffective, and he couldn't explain the science. And he hired a young assistant who went straight to the uh, straight to the center um, of the issue and said look let's not bother ourselves with all this science all this theory theory is worthless and useless all that matters are the observations of sensible men men of course um, has anybody ever seen um, a lightning conductor attract lightning from outside. Has anybody ever been saved or killed by a lightning conductor? And there were only 11 conductors in the whole of France at the time, and they hadn't. And so he said, in that case, it's okay, stop making a fuss about it, uh, uh, leave it there. And he wrote a, wrote a long judgment, which he sent to uh, Benjamin Franklin, the French, uh, the American uh, uh, who li living in France, and the name of that individual was Robespierre. And Robespierre that was Robespierre's first legal case. And he was a young man, and it made him famous. He was elected to the Academy of Arras, and from that, um, he, uh, he, uh, he climbed upwards to the highest levels of, French, of the French political system. So he got into it, he got into politics through science. Right? Um, now, he was instrumental in the terror. Terror is only justice. Okay? Sounds a bit like our Home Secretary here. Uh, consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to the most pressing wants of the country. He paid the price, needless to say, because he himself uh, was arrested and, and uh, threatened with execution. He tried to commit suicide with a pistol, but he only succeeded in blowing his jaw away. And the following day, uh, he was executed. There's the execution of Robespierre, and there's his death mask. So that was Robespierre also involved. And Robespierre was the person behind the prosecution of Lavoisier. People have gone to, to Robespierre and said, you, you know, you can't kill Lavoisier. I mean, he's, the, he's one of the most famous scientists in the world. And Lavoisier lost his temper and, and had threatened to kill the people who came to see him. So that was the end of Lavoisier. So it's all sort of tied together, all right? And it's tied to another field of human observation, which is Lavoisier's work, not particularly on chemistry, 
but on um, physiology. And this is Lavoisier and his wife in the laboratory, painted again by David. And it's an absolutely wonderful painting. It's, uh, uh, it's said that the, the painting of those glass vessels is the best painting of glass ever made. It's in the uh, Metropolitan Museum in, uh, in, in New York now. Um, and there's Lavoisier with Madame Lavoisier, who he married when she was only 15. And she was his assistant, more than his assistant. Um, and she, carried, she helped him carry out many of his experiments. Now, Lavoisier famously had done an experiment which caused a sensation. He directed a burning glass outside the Louvre on a sunny day with two powerful lenses and a big, complicated um, uh, apparatus like this, which, which concentrated the rays of the sun onto a diamond. Okay. And within a few moments, the diamond disappeared. Now, that, of course, was completely baffling. But what, of course, had happened was the heat of the sun had caused the carbon in the diamond to combine with oxygen in the air and to, to blow away. And this, of course, greatly alarmed the fashionable ladies walking past who walked, who walked a little faster as a result. But that was part of Lavoisier's demonstration that all substances were made of things that would later become called elements that could combine and be broken apart in different ways. And that was the, really was the foundation of chemistry. And Wazi went further than that um, because he applied the idea of burning to human metabolism. And this is uh, Lavoisier's respiration experiment, as it's called. Here we've got Lavoisier with a, a, a bath um, into which a young man whose name was Armand Seguin, you see him on the left there, he's got a mask over his face, which is glued onto his face, and he's, got, he's wearing a rubber suit, and he's breathing in and out, and uh, what Lavoisier is doing is measuring the amount of carbon dioxide he's breathing out, and he's breathing in oxygen, and he's simultaneously measuring the amount of oxygen he's breathing in. Okay, and he did that at rest, he did that after a meal, he did that while pedaling something that looks a bit like a bicycle uh, with the heavy weights being lifted up and down. And what uh, Lavoisier found was that the rate of respiration and the rate of burning increased with exercise. And in the background on the right, you can see Madame Lavoisier taking notes of the experiment. Okay. Um, he went on to do the same thing, not just with humans, but with guinea pigs. He was the first person to use a guinea pig in an experiment. That's where the word guinea pig comes from. That's the Lavoisier's experiment. And he and his colleague invented a, what he called a calorimeter, which is a box filled with ice. They put the guinea pig in there. They measured how much oxygen it, 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 it breathed in, how much CO2 it came out, and how much heat it generated by measuring the amount of ice water that dripped out to the bottom of the ice. And Lavoisier summarized his results uh, in his in elementary, elementary treatise of chemistry, published in the very year of the, of the revolution, 1789. The animal machine is governed by three types of regulators, respiration that consumes hydrogen and carbon and furnishes heat, digestion which replenishes that which is lost in the lungs, and transpiration that increases or diminishes diminishes with the necessary necessity to carry away more or less heat, transpiration being uh, s uh, both sweating and breathing out warm air. Okay? Um, so that was Lavoisier's interpretation of human physiology. Armand Seguin, the man in the iron mask, um, was, uh, went on after the death of Lavoisier to discover opium, to invent a new method of tanning, tan tanning uh, um, uh, skins for the Napoleonic armies, and he became extraordinarily rich. Um, but uh, Seguin actually was at the, at the very beginning, at the very beginning 
of modern pharmacology with the invent with the discovery of opium, of various other chemicals at just that time, including strychnine. All of those are discovered in Paris. Okay. And as we'll see in a moment, all these come together in a rather French event. And that French event <laughs> is the Tour de France. And the Tour de France has an interesting and uniquely French um, origin, because it began as an anti-Semitic gesture. It was a political gesture, the Tour de France. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, a magazine, the Velo, um, which was, uh, which was um, a rather liberal magazine about bicycles, okay? Because bicycles, of course, were becoming very popular in 1903 when the Tour began. Um, and one of the advertisers in that magazine was, uh, was a furious anti-Dreyfusard. And here's Dreyfus, the Dreyfus Affair, um, and Dreyfus was a, a Jewish um, soldier who was accused of treason. And um, it was a completely false accusation, but he was humbled in public, he was sent to Devil's Island, his sword was broken, um, and famously Emil Zola wrote a furious letter saying this was totally unacceptable after some years Dreyfus came back. But it was at the centre of French politics for many years. Um, and the publisher of this, uh, of this magazine was a liberal, um, which infuriated one of his richest advertisers, who pulled out all his advertisements from the magazine and started a magazine of its own, which is called, was called Lotto. Okay, and, that he, and he had a publicity stunt, which was to set up a tour of France. And it happened in 1903. And of course, it's gone on since then, ever since. And since then, of course, it's become deeply in, involved in, in, in cheating of various ways. Uh, this is one of the early cheats. Um, <laughs> he, he was in the first tour, and he took the train for one of the... Uh, he almost got away with it, they found it they, but they found a train ticket in his pocket. Um, all right. Um, he looks like a bit of a he looks like he looks like a bit of a rascal. However, his uh, his uh, successor Lance Armstrong seems like a decent, wholesome, all-American boy. But of course, he was too was a complete uh, complete cheat. In fact, many at sometimes everybody in the tour was cheating, and they were cheating with drugs, and they were cheating with the drugs and with the knowledge of physiology which had been worked on in revolutionary times. Many of them used opium which didn't do, didn't do him any good, apart from make him constipated. Some of them used strychnine, because it was thought to be, it was thought to be a, a muscle stimulant, and that doesn't work either. But they also did things like give themselves blood transfusions to push up their oxygen levels and that kind of stuff. Okay. And all that has now come out into the... Has now come out into the um, into the uh, uh, open air and may well, in some ways, mark the end of, of, uh, of, of the sport of athletics unless something drastic is actually done, like cancelling all the present records which people are now talking about doing. So, and that too has a tie with, um, with uh, Lavoisier because Lavoisier pointed out that one of the things which was demanded if you were to do intense exercise, like lifting weights up and down, was more oxygen, um, uh, heavier breathing and the ability to lose heat. And famously, Tom Simpson, an English, an English writer, on Mont Ventoux, which is a tremendously hot, blasted, open place where they ride, ride up the mountains, um, he had taken drugs. He'd taken drugs before, the evening before um, and he went up there and collapsed of heat stroke and that's him dying of heat stroke. And his last words were, put me back on my bike. 
And if you go up there now, I've never actually seen this, although I've been to Mont Blanc too, um, there's, a, there's a, uh, a monument to the man who died of heat stroke. And the irony is that now we understand so much about physiology, we understand a great deal of what's happening behind these extreme sports events, and in a way that descends from Lavoisier and his colleagues, and in a way also that descends, as we'll see at the end of the talk, from some of the philosophical um, issues that were raised at the time of the, uh, of the, the, in the years of the guillotine. Um, the other great race, of course, is not the Tour de France, which is new, but the marathon. And the marathon is, th is 2,000 years old, and it, of course, is named after the great, the great run from Marathon to Athens by Pheidippides, um, who ran there with news of a victory over the Persians on a hot summer's day, and collapsed and died of heat exhaustion after he had shouted, we, we have victory. That's what they say anyway, they're sticking to it. And the Paris Marathon is a big event, the fifth biggest in the world. And they take the same route as the Tour de France at the end, but in the opposite direction, and they go underneath the Eiffel Tower, as they do in Kiev. Um, and what marathons have done is to show us that actually the, there are differences in individual physiology, individual abilities to deal with oxygen shortage, with heat and the, and the like, which mimic those which you can generate with drugs. And in some ways are more effective than those you can generate with drugs. And that's been known in, in animals for quite some time. If you climb to the heights of Everest, the amount of oxygen in the air uh, drops to a third of what it is at the bottom. And there are almost no animals who can survive on the, on the, surf, on the top of Everest, apart from one which is this thing called the bar-headed goose. There are some in Green Park. They're not flying over the top of Everest. It's, a, it's an Indian bird. And every year they fly over Tibet at 30,000 feet and more um, with, uh, with, you know, uh, with absolutely no difficulty. How do they do that? No other bird could do that. They have a shift in hemoglobin. They've got a special hemoglobin which can soak up more oxygen than other birds' hemoglobins are, and they also have bigger lungs, um, and they also have more effective muscles, okay, uh, denser muscle fibers. So these birds have evolved to deal with low oxygen levels. Um, and so, of course, have other, other warm-blooded animals, including the people of Tibet themselves, people of the Andes, and those of the Amhara Mountains in Ethiopia, and the Kiranjin Mountains in, in Kenya. Okay. And these are some of these people, and if you test them, it turns out that in their different ways, these individuals are more able to deal with oxygen shortage than are people from the lowlands. They do it in a different way. The Tibetans do it by altering the extent to which their blood vessels open, so they can, they can move a lot more um, blood through the arteries. Um, the Andeans do it with more hemoglobin, and the Andeans haven't been there as long as the Tibetans, or so it seems, because the Andeans still suffer from mountain sickness. And they suffer from a, from a problem, which is if you've got so much hemoglobin, so many red cells, they can, they can as it were, uh, get clogged up and cause you real problems. But the, 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 one, of, one of the main winners in this year's, or the winner this year's uh, Tour de France, was himself, an Andean. Okay. So there are biological differences between these people. And not, it's, not just in it's not just in oxygen um, sensitivity, it's in the ability to withstand pain. And this is uh, a colleague of mine works on pain, and it turns out that people with an African background, for reasons we really don't understand, are more able to stand, to stand intense pain um, than, than uh, people of a Hispanic, European that is, um, or, 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 uh, or, or Asian background. Okay? Uh, and there are more differences too. The heat thing is that really counts. 
Pheidippides died in 490 BC, and the Sun in that day published a headline, typical headline, Maniac Killed by 25-Mile Run, Copycats Warned Over Marathon Suicide. Dash. This was actually the Sun's attempt to produce an educational book, and it wasn't really as bad. Um, and here we've got the Pietri in the first Olympic marathon. The poor guy was so exhausted and so heat, so much had heat stroke that he took the wrong turn in the stadium and went the wrong way around. And here they're helping him to the finishing post, and of course the medal was taken away from him rather sadly. Um, but he was heat exhausted, and heat exhaustion is a major issue when it comes to marathons or any other um, sport. All the world marathon records have been, have been gained in months outside July and August. Okay? The Paris Marathon and the London Marathon are in August, but nobody's going to break the records there. They only break records in May and September when it's relatively cool. So even a slight increase in temperature is a, is a big, is a, cause a big, de, de, a, big, a big demand. And there is one group of athletes who now, of course, dominate the world of the marathon. In 1948, there was only one African marathon, uh, one African in the, top, in the top 25 marathon runners. Then as you go on to 2012, every single one is of African origin, and 21 of those 25 all come from a small part of Kenya, which is Colin Jin, okay, which represents, so it's not 21, sorry, it's, it's uh, well, yeah, it is 21 of the top 25, it's a fifth of the, of the top 100. Um, uh, Kalenjin represent one in 2,000 of the world population, and yet they're one-fifth of top marathon runners, and if you look at them, they've got better heat loss uh, through body build, they've got low oxygen genes, their basal metabolic rate, the rate at which their body takes over, is relatively low, they to tolerate higher body temperatures because they've got lower pain sensitivity. Um, you can you you can see that all these things have a lot to do with their success, and if you look at them, if you look at any great runner, you'll find that they've got uh, long, spindly arms and legs, which gives them more mechanical advantage and help, also helps them to lose heat. Okay. So these guys are winning, and they win because they go in for it because they get a lot of money. You can get enough to keep your family for a lifetime if you win an international marathon. So these people are highly motivated as well. Now, so that's genetic. All these, we know the genes behind this, and there are, we're beginning to find the genes between, behind heat sensitivity, behind um, um, the ability to deal with oxygen shortage and the like. But everything has now changed in genetics in a way, of course, which you've heard, no doubt, because genetics, running DNA, has in effect become free. This is the cost of reading human, the gen, human genome from one end to the other. 3,000 million DNA letters, okay? There are four letters, A, G, C, and T. We've all got 3,000 million of those letters in every one of our cells. If any one of you struck dumb by boredom through this talk were to rush out into uh, the main street outside, there's that dreadful roundabout, and be struck by a speeding bus, or more likely a speeding bicycle, I would say, and, uh, <clears throat> and squashed flat, squashed entirely flat, the DNA in your body would stretch from the damp patch on the pavement that used to be you to the moon and back 8,000 times. Now, that's a lot of DNA, okay? But we can read, and that's because there are trillions of cells in your body, each of which has got two meters of DNA in it. But we can read that now. And I remember when people started talking in the year 2000, about reading off the whole of human DNA. Every, all us geneticists thought, what a load of rubbish, what a load of waste of money. Of course, that's because we weren't involved in doing it. And the US government and the, and the Wellcome Trust, not the British government, the Wellcome Trust, put aside $100 million to do the job, okay? 
And they basically spent most of their $100 million. But technology of reading the DNA off it has, has, uh, has expanded at the most astounding, almost unbelievable rate. The solid black line there is what's called Moore's Law. And what that does, it accepts the fact that the price of, every year, the price of computer chips halves and the speed of computer chips doubles. And that's been true consistently for the last um, uh, 15, 20 years. Okay? Um, and that's pretty impressive. DNA sequencing, in, in the year um, 2000, it cost $100 million. By 2006, it was down to $10 million. By uh, 2013, it was down to $1,000. This year, it's down to $100, and at this rate, it'll be down to $10 before 2020. So you'll be able to read DNA, human DNA, for effectively nothing. And people are already going out. There's already a 1,000 genome project uh, uh, going on in Britain to read 1,000 DNA. And that's been done. 1,000, it seems like nothing. We're going for 10,000 now. And they're going to be taking people like athletes and, um, and, uh, and the, the sedentary among us and asking, on the average, what's the genetic constitution of the athletes versus those of, the, of those um, who are simply sedentary. Um, and they're going to find them. And here's one they found, which is uh, an enzyme called angiotensin-converting enzyme. And this is one of these... Uh, enzymes that alters the ability to soak in oxygen. It does lots and lots of other things too. And it was like, but it, soaks, it helps you soak in oxygen. It's important in medicine because if you've got a, a feeble version of it and you're having difficulty breathing, you're considerably worse off than you would otherwise be. And like lots of these uh, enzymes and genes, it, it's present in different flavours in different people. In fact, about a third of the people in this room have got a version of that enzyme, the ACE gene as it's called, which has inserted into it, in red there, uh, Two copies of an insertion, as it's called, um, with an extra length of DNA. Um, about the, another third has got two copies with no, no two, uh, two, uh, two lengths of that section of the enzyme with no insertion, and the rest of us have got one copy of the insertion. And it turns out that your ability to deal with low oxygen levels, either after uh, an asthma attack or after a damaging your chest in a car accident is strongly related to, um, to, your, uh, to your, what your genotype is there. And this is work which began at UCL, a friend of mine called Hugh Montgomery, who himself is a, a manic, maniacal athlete. He's getting on a bit now. He's in his late 50s. But in his youth, he was a major athlete. He was a major semi-professional um, uh, alpine and Himalayan climber. He was a free diver who dived down deep in the water. He had his own light plane. He writes children's books that sell hundreds of thousands of copies. In fact, he really annoys me every day. That's another story. <laughs> um, okay. But uh, Hugh's great desire, he's been up Everest several times, but he's never done it without oxygen. He's never done the bar-headed goose um, experiment. So he set up at the base, oxygen base, at the, at the, at the um, Everest base camp, there is a UCL laboratory now, where they test people who've gone up and come down and they ask various questions about them. Um, and uh, this is what he found. We look at the top here. Here's the ACE gene. People who've got, have managed to get up the top of Everest without oxygen, and the top in A there, are, are shown um, in brown as, uh, as high-level oxygen-free climbers. And the others are in this, the general population. And you can see, if you've got two copies of the long version of the gene, the II, the inserted version, uh, that's much more common among the ACE uh, climbers, among those who can deal with low levels of oxygen. Um, hasn't yet been done on marathon runners, but I'm willing to bet you'll find something if you do it. Um, those, on the other hand, with two copies of the short version, are much less liable 
to be able to deal with low oxygen at the top of Everest, or for that matter, in a marathon. And ironically enough, Hugh Montgomery's discovered that he has two versions of the short um, form of this enzyme, which means that he, for biological reasons, will never climb Everest without oxygen. Okay. Well, Everest, I'm not particularly tempted to climb Everest with or without oxygen. I've been up snow, and that's enough for me. Um, <laughs> But it's got a wider interest than that. The US Army, like all armies, when it hires people to go into the army, the first thing they do is put them through uh, some intensive training to increase their physical fitness. And that's in B below. And what this is, is a, a diagram that shows the ability to increase the number of press-ups you can do. Remember press-ups? I think I did my last one in 1961. I don't intend to do any more. Uh, press-ups are really pretty hard work. You know, you're pressing up and down. And the question is, okay, see if you can do press-ups for a minute. And most people can just about do press-ups, young men, healthy young men and women, can just about do press-ups for a minute. And then they train them as hard as they can. And if you have got two copies of the long version, II, you can increase your time you can do press-ups from by 80 seconds. You can more than double it. But if you've got two copies of the short version, DD, you can scarcely improve at all. So you could screen soldiers before they join the army to see whether they're going to increase fitness or not for biological reasons. So that, too, is... Um, is um, Yes, something which I think will come to the world of athletics. What we're going to do about it is much more difficult to know. But you are going to be able to pick out the probable winners with a genetic test. Um, genetic test isn't going to tell you everything. Here's Mo Farah, probably the best athlete in the world. Mo Farah has an identical twin who shares all his genes. Uh, Mo has won, won short races and long races. He came to Britain from Somalia with his father and went to a state school, was immediately picked up as an extraordinary athlete and trained. That's his identical twin brothers who are still in, still in Somalia as a motor mechanic. Um, and when they were young, they used to race each other, Mo says, and sometimes he'd win, sometimes he'd, his twin would win. Now, of course, if they raced each other, Mo would win every time. The genes are the same, but he's trained. So it's not just genes, but genes are there. When you're at the edge of human abilities, those genes are going to play an important part. And the irony is that in spite of the, um, in spite of the extraordinary triumph of Africans with their highly effective uh, genes for athletics in the, uh, in the marathon. There have only been altogether five African riders in the Tour de France. This year there were three of them um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an African team, which came mainly from South Africa. It was a mixture of whites and blacks. They didn't do all that well, but that's because the Tour de France demands absolutely top-rate equipment, very expensive and lengthy training and the like, which they couldn't do. But I think in years to come, it may well be that you're going to end up with, um, with, um, with uh, uh, African domination of the Tour de France as well. And you, that leads to some very interesting questions. In horse racing, for example, where exactly this effect is, is, is present, um, if you do particularly well for biological reasons, what happens? You're actually um, you're handicapped. You have to carry little weights to slow you down. Is it going to be the case that Africans are going to have to carry weights in their pockets to slow them down to give Europeans a chance? I don't think so, but it opens up some interesting questions because people who abuse drugs to improve their biological abilities are universally um, sneered at, upon okay, and disapproved of. But if people use natural variation, how is that different? In many ways, it isn't different. Um, are you going to match people for their genes before you allow them to race? Does everybody have to be an identical twin in a race? I don't think that's going to happen either. But actually, um, Condorcet, 
who was very active behind the revolution and was a mathematician, surveyor, uh, and philosopher, made the claim, he stated in his, in his very extensive, writing, extensive writings, that the claim that any human group is of its essence less or more, blessed with particular abilities than others, is an attempt to make nature herself an accomplice of political inequality. And that's a, an interesting thought, 200 years before its time, really, um, where he realized that actually there were biological differences, but we mustn't use them in our decisions about people's, particularly in politics. He used that as an argument that women should have the vote. He didn't, on the other hand, use it as an argument that women should allow to stand for election. That was going too far. Um, and in the end, he was murdered in prison during the course of the revolution. So that really is the essence of my story, really, which is that Paris was the world capital of science in a way that no city before or since ever has been, or probably ever will be, that the, that the scientists of Paris were uniquely associated with the revolution in a way that no city, no scientists anywhere else ever have been. Um, and really, I think we can learn some important lessons from their experiences. Um, after the revolution was over, those who survived came back, and many of them made astonishing um, made astonishing progress in the world of politics. Uh, Arago, who was a geographer who mapped France and did the, the first survey of Europe, became prime minister. Um, Carnot, who was a physicist, was minister of war. Chaptal, who invented bleach, who was a chemist, became minister of the interior under Napoleon. And various uh, chemists, explorers, botanists, herpetologists, mathematicians, including Lagrange and, Lagrange and Laplace, two major figures, um, all became senators in the French Senate. So really, even after the revolution, it was, France was a land of scientists. Now, that didn't necessarily, of course, mean that France turned into a great political triumph because it had revolution after revolution. It had the, the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, which sparked off. It had the revolution of 1848, which was sparked off by a famine more than anything else. It had the Commune of 1870. So things can go wrong. And on this kind of this side of the colleague of the of the channel of the channel, of course, scientists have never played that role. Mrs. Thatcher was a scientist, or so she claimed, um, but um, I find that hard to believe. Right? <laughs> um, uh, scientists had never played that role at all. She didn't finish her PhD, so he isn't a real scientist. Okay. Um, so, uh, and actually, you can see that. But here's a man who's, who, who made a, uh, an astute summary of that. Scientists should be on tap. On tap and not on top. And given the events of the century after the French Revolution, before the building of the Eiffel Tower, I think he was probably right. So I'll stop there. Thank you. For all further information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.